Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we talk to a one-time anti-poverty campaigner who has taken up the fight to ensure that the web remains a public good that is open to all. The web wasn't invented by a government or by a large company. It was invented and then developed and built by, in the end, millions of people. And it's those millions of people, all of us, that have a responsibility to protect it and to defend it. That was Adrian Lovett, President and Chief Executive Officer of the World Wide Web Foundation. He came into the FT studio to talk about his work to ensure that the web continues to develop as a force for public good. Welcome, Adrian. Tell us, when was the foundation set up and what does it aim to do? Well, almost 10 years ago, when Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web, of course, saw that his creation was reaching about a fifth of the world, far beyond, I think, what he ever initially expected, he figured, he and Rosemary Leith together, figured that it needed to be defended. And that founding vision of the web as, firstly, for everyone, and secondly, a public good that one way or another should support the best in humanity rather than the opposite, that those things needed to be protected. So he established an organisation. It's a relatively small organisation, and we work around the world in 12 or so countries with a team of about 30, and I lead the organisation and have the great privilege of doing that from here in London. And how is it financed? So we're supported by a number of sources. We have some great other foundations that support us, like the Ford Foundation, the Amidiar Network, who are terrific supporters. We have some support from some governments, the Swedish government, for example, in their development work, support us, the Canadians as well, and a couple of others, and some generous individuals also on the company side, you know, an increasing amount of support coming from that side too. So it's a range of different ways of us being able to do our work. Right. What are the big challenges, do you think, on the web? What are you trying to achieve? Well, we're at what we're calling a 50-50 moment, the point at which just in a few months, early next year, we'll see more than half of the world online for the first time. And that, I think, is a moment for taking stock, for looking at what an extraordinary gift that has been to the world and remains and how so much of our lives are changed for the better because of the web. But then I think, you know, with two big challenges to look forward to. Firstly, how do we get the next 50% connected? And secondly, how do we ensure that it's worth connecting to? You know, how do we ensure that actually the web, as it was originally designed and envisaged, is the web we have today and the web we will have in the future? Because there's no point us going all out to get everyone connected to something that is not worth connecting to. So it's the 30th birthday of the web next March, I believe. Is it going to take another 30 years to connect the rest of the population? Well, we hope not. I mean, extraordinarily, of course, the UN in their sustainable development goals that were set a couple of years ago said that the world should be connected to ICT, including access to the internet, by 2020. Now, we are clearly not going to achieve that target. We, in fact, are going to be at least 20 years short of that target. So, you know, I think the answer to that question is it depends on what the world chooses to do, whether that's governments, companies, all of us as citizens, if we all step up and play our part, then we have a chance of reaching that goal much, much sooner. And who do you think are going to be the main drivers of linking up everyone who is unconnected at the moment? Is it going to be primarily governments? Is it the private sector? Who is going to be the driving force? It really does have to be a joint effort. I mean, there is obviously a market effect of increasing access, and we've seen a lot of that so far. But, you know, one of the interesting things I've found in being in this role in the last year or so with the Web Foundation is talking to lots of people who know far more than me about the arc of increasing access. There isn't consensus about where it tails off. 
everyone agrees, of course, because it's economic logic that it doesn't go all the way to 100% driven by purely market forces. It tapers off somewhere. And some people will be optimistic and say, yeah, it'll get to 85, 90%. And then we need to worry about the last sort of half a billion or so. Others, much less so. And in some ways, there's some signs that there may already be a tailing off. We expected to reach this 50-50 point actually initially last year. And the ITU, the International Telecoms Union, revised those figures a couple of times based on the latest data. And now it's not going to be until next year. So there's certainly no room for complacency. And it's going to take, I think, governments to help create the environment in which investments can be made and in which those who are hardest to reach are reached. But absolutely, it's going to take a major drive from companies and from the private sector to actually connect people. And the ways in which people are connected can also be highly controversial. I mean, we obviously had the case in India with Facebook and the Free Basics program where the Indian government rejected what they call digital colonialism and wanted unfiltered access for people to the internet. So there's a trade-off, isn't there, between companies who are willing to provide internet access and sometimes governments who would rather that it was done in a more neutral way. Yes, well, there has been a trade-off. We're not sure there needs to be a trade-off. I think there's certainly an argument that you have to make compromises around technical capacity and bandwidth, if you like. You know, it's obviously difficult to ensure that everyone can access unlimited capacity bandwidth on the web. But the problem with at least the initial version of Free Basics, and I think Facebook are looking at this now, was not just that it limited based on bandwidth, it limited based on editorial choice in the end. You know, websites had to re-engineer themselves to be Free Basics compliant, if you like. And that meant a much, much smaller worldwide web, not a worldwide web, than should be accessed. So, you know, it's one thing to say, well, there's a limit based on technical capacity. It's another thing to say only certain websites should be allowed. And that has to be something that we put behind us pretty soon, I hope. Sure. And I guess the people who still need to be connected are, by definition, living in some of the poorest, most remote parts of the world. So the problem gets progressively harder, doesn't it? It does, yes. I mean, there's sort of four dimensions of the problem as we see it. The first is the simple technical capability to connect. Are you close enough to a mast or a satellite or or whatever it is that enables you to connect so that you can actually get a signal? But that's only one part of it. Now, you know, actually about two thirds or more of the world is covered in that sense, but only half the world is online. So what's the difference? Well, that's the other three parts. The first is how do we make it affordable? And there's a lot of work that we've been doing with something that we host and lead called the Alliance for Affordable Internet, which brings together companies and governments and civil society organizations in developing countries to work together to push down the price of broadband. The next is around skills, ensuring that people have the skills that they need to get online to access the internet and make the most of it. And then the final one is content. You know, actually, it's one thing if people can technically access it, if they can afford it, and they've got the skills to do it. But if the content is not meaningful and relevant to them, or even in the right language, then we're not going to see people getting online and making the most of what the web is. One of the issues that keeps on coming up in the Tectonic podcast and our readers comment on is the fact that we're in danger of cementing a lot of the old power hierarchies into the new digital world. And you can see that, I guess, in the access to the web in that a lot of the people who are excluded are the poor and a disproportionate number of women as well. So is there a real social rebalancing that needs to be achieved as well? Absolutely. And the evidence is really clear and actually worryingly going in the wrong direction. Men are a third more likely to be online globally 
according to the Internet Inclusivity Index. Our own research has found specifically in developing countries, cities, in urban contexts, in poorer countries, that women are 50% less likely to be online than men and less likely to be doing certain things, less likely to be applying for a job, for example, less likely to be expressing a strong opinion online, on social media and so on. So what's going on there? It's not just the simple access issue. It's about what women and girls are doing online being different to men and boys and how do we bridge that gap. But it's a real one that we've got to address. And how can you do- Well, I mean, we've put together a framework which we call REACT, R-E-A-C-T, which stands for Rights, Education, Access, Content and Targets. So one of those, I remember them all, did you see? (laughs) I didn't look down. (laughs) You know, putting together the necessary policy elements that will ensure that we have a comprehensive approach country by country to ensuring women have the same opportunities, the same access as men. It does require a dedicated and active, proactive approach. And some countries have started to bridge that. Rwanda, for example, has made some progress on that where some other countries haven't. But there's no single sort of magic bullet on that. It's going to require a comprehensive approach. And which are going to be the toughest parts of the world or toughest countries to crack, do you think? Well, unfortunately, it's not so different to wider development challenges of extreme poverty and clean water and primary education. The simple unfortunate fact is that Africa is lagging behind. It's not a single picture because Africa is a very big place, as we know, and a very diverse place. But overall, if you look at the curves that we see of increasing access and meaningful use of the web, Africa is lagging behind. It's also lagging behind quite badly on affordability. And our own research finds that people in Africa are paying at the moment about five times for a gigabyte of data what people in Asia are paying. And of course, people in Asia are paying considerably more than Europe and North America. So Africa, unfortunately, has got the biggest challenge. And so we do need a concerted effort there. Now, you were talking about those development challenges, and luckily enough, you have a background in development uh, advocacy and policy. Could you tell us a bit about where you worked before the Webb Foundation? Yes, I mean, I've spent most of the last 20 years or so working in policy and campaigning on issues around global justice and global development. Spent several years in the late 90s on a campaign called Jubilee 2000, which focused on the unpayable debts of the poorest countries. And we managed to get through action involving various G7 or G8 summits, as they were back then. We managed to get $95 billion of that debt cancelled and a lot of it invested in basic education and primary health care and so on. And then subsequently in 2005, the moment when the G8 came to the UK, to Scotland, to Glen Eagles, and with a very wide group of dedicated and hugely impressive campaigners, I was fortunate to be part of the group that organized the Make Poverty History campaign. And I suppose, I mean, I remember in 2005, not too far from here, actually. In- Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business... Whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Trafalgar Square in London, when Nelson Mandela came to speak and to support the Make Poverty History campaign. And I was incredibly privileged to be the person who spoke before the 
warm-up act before the singer who came on ahead of the person who actually introduced Nelson Mandela. So that's as close to greatness as I've come, and I'm very excited to be in that place. And I remember this was February 2005. It was a very cold day, and I was doing my speech, and I was trying to get a message across about the need for people to come together and to raise their voices and to get a message across to, actually, in that particular case, Tony Blair, who was prime minister in the UK at the time and was the chair of the G8 that year. And I pulled out my old Nokia 3210 and held it up, and I said let's text him now. And I gave everyone the number and and it feels like a completely different era now. I remember seeing people sort of, you know, sticky fingers getting stuck and thinking, what do I have to text? Oh, make poverty history. That's a bit long. There's no autocorrect. <laughs> and so, it, you know, in, in some ways it feels like a long time ago and a very different world to the one that we've just been talking about that we're focused on now, a different challenge. But in some ways it's not. I mean, the difference is, of course, that the technology is a completely different. Twitter wasn't even invented. Facebook was still, I think, a couple of dorms in Harvard when we were doing Make Poverty History. And I guess we also had a much more singular focus on governments as the agents for change. Now, I think that has progressed. There's still no doubt at all of the central role that governments have to play. But there's also, I think, as much of a focus on the role that the private sector has and large companies in particular. But I suppose what hasn't changed is that what underpinned most of that work we were doing there was the notion that you have to build a big tent, you have to bring people together. And I think that's still true in cracking this challenge of internet access, just as it was when we were trying to reduce extreme poverty and so on. You have to understand this, I think, as a moral cause. It's something that is about people's basic rights. It's not an act of charity. It's an act of justice to push on these things and to get progress. And I think certainly in the work that I've tried to be involved in, You have to ground your arguments in facts and in the evidence wherever you can. And then to popularize that and to make it something people can relate to and connect to in their own lives. But you have to try and work from the actual facts that are true. And working with both Bono and Tim Berners-Lee, they're rather different character archetypes, I would say. Um, That must have been an interesting experience. (laughs) In their worlds. Yes, they're different, but they're both, I would say, both actually in their ways, very passionate about that last point that I made, actually thinking about it, about facts, about evidence. And, you know, Bono would always want to, uh, will still always want to have the best information of anyone in the room and make sure he's as well prepared for a meeting with a finance minister or whatever as he possibly could be, and very much believed in the power of facts to persuade and to move things forward. And Tim, of course, you know, this has been his world for 30 years or more, the way he built the web out of an idea, but immediately was making that real and concrete, making connections between things that previously hadn't been connected, the existing infrastructure of the internet and the emerging hypertext possibilities. You know, all of that was, I guess, based on, yes, a sort of moral conviction that this could be something good and a sense of creativity of wanting to build something, but also a real belief in if you put things that evidently exist that are true, um, factually correct in front of people and make an argument based on those things, then you have a chance of getting somewhere. Now, you spoke earlier about how one of the consequences of connecting people to the web is that they should have things worth connecting to. And Sir Tim has talked about his fears about various bad actors are weaponizing the web, as he puts it, whether it's issues like misinformation or manipulation or personal data capture. What are you doing to help address all of those kind of evils? 
Well, the first thing I think is that we see these things needing to be brought together. Each of these issues that you mentioned and many others as well, you know, whether it's content online, whether it's threats to people's personal data, whether it's the challenge of dealing with hate speech and harassment and so on, censorship by governments in different parts of the world. You know, we can take each of these one by one, but I think what's more productive is to try to bring them together and to recognize that essentially all of us have a role to play. All of us have responsibilities, whether we are public policymakers in governments, whether we are in the private sector in companies, large or small, or whether we are simply citizens and users of the web. We all need to be brought together. And we've had this idea about a sort of a contract for the web, which Tim is thinking a lot about and going to say more about in the coming weeks which would bring together and try to articulate what are the obligations of each of those groups, companies, governments, and citizens. Not only the rights, and the rights in terms of citizens, of course, are critically important, that's a starting point, but let's recognize also that we as citizens have responsibilities to realize the founding vision of that web. So some people have talked about a Magna Carta for the web, as it were. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yes, I mean, that's something that Tim has talked about in the past, and I think we're building on that, yes. And I think, as the name implies... That starts from a sense of what are our fundamental rights, and that is our starting point. But I think also, you know, when we think about people being creators on the web as well as consumers, well, that's not just about our rights, that's about our responsibilities. When we think about the need to establish some kind of social norms online of civility and you know respect for other human beings that again is as much about our responsibilities as it is about our rights so i think the idea is to put together a set of things that address what each of those groups need to do and that will include of course what we would been talking about earlier about ensuring that everybody can get connected. That's a big part of the responsibility of both governments and companies, of respecting individuals' privacy, huge responsibility for, again, both those groups. But also, as I say, what are the responsibilities that we all have? Because, you know, the web wasn't invented by a government or by a large company. It was invented and then developed and built by in the end, millions of people. And it's those millions of people, all of us, that have a responsibility to protect it and to defend it. To what extent do you think the big tech companies are part of the problem or part of the solution in addressing the issues that you're confronting? Well, there's no doubt that there are problems that we are confronting that have been brought about because of those companies. Such as the balkanization of the web, you think? Well, yeah. I mean, I think on that... The web doesn't sit outside the physical world of laws and governments. We absolutely need rules to make sure the web serves humanity, whether that's with net neutrality or with the GDPR in Europe and so on. But that also is not a license for governments who seek to undermine the open web themselves, some of them who might, to use it as a tool for control, whether in China or censorship issues in Tanzania or uh, issues around bloggers having to get licenses in Uganda and so on. So I think, you know, again, it comes back to that sense of the balance of responsibilities that each of us hold. And big tech companies, of course, have an enormous role to play. They have huge responsibility. Their first responsibility, as, for example, Mark Zuckerberg has said himself, is to protect our data. And they know they need to do better at that, for starters. But I think what, you know, even the recent news about the latest leak from Facebook tells us is that this is not easy for any company or any individual, any leader to tackle. And that's why I think it has to come back for what can we all do to address this problem. How receptive are the big tech companies to your agenda? There's quite a lot of receptivity, I would say. I think that it doesn't seem to us, and I think Tim would say the same, that um, the people leading these companies 
you know, going to work on a Monday morning and think, how can we really mess up the world a bit more? But some of the effects, unintended, no doubt, in most cases, of their products have done that or are doing that. We have found, I've certainly found in this last year that I've been in this role, almost always an openness, a willingness to listen, a curiosity about what we've got to put forward. And in at least some cases, a real hunger for those ideas because they recognize that there is a problem. I was in San Francisco two weeks ago and there are as many people who have worked in the tech business. You've talked to some of them, Tristan Harris and so on, who are saying we have a very, very serious problem and there's not a small fix for this, as there are people saying everything's fine. There's probably more in the first group now, I guess. You mentioned China earlier, and that's obvious that the web in China is developing in a very different way than it is in other parts of the world. Do you believe in this kind of notion of a splinternet that we're effectively going to end up with several different ecosystems roughly coexisting? Yeah, I mean, I think it's perhaps early to say, and that sounds like a cop-out, but I think certainly, of course, China is taking a different path, not just in this, but in other respects too. I think, though, that there is reason to be hopeful that the effect of large-scale initiatives such as the GDPR in Europe, which we've already seen is having an effect well beyond Europe, that there is an opportunity to try to set some norms where the energy comes from one part of the world, but the effect goes much more broadly. Whether that, in the end, uh, gets as far as China in a substantive way, I think we've got to see. Okay. Now, one of the other issues that you're pressing very hard at the Web Foundation is the whole open data movement. Could you paint a vision for us? What do you think are the big long-term benefits of having governments and other public sector bodies putting more data out into the open? Well, this is something that not just the Web Foundation, but many other organizations, including others I've been involved with in the past, have been very passionate about because the starting point is that transparency is almost always a good thing. You know, there's a sort of a kind of an article of faith, I guess, and perhaps more that than empirically proven so far, that the more of that data, particularly government data, public data that is in the public domain, the better the impact in terms of human development, people being able to improve their lives and claim their rights and so on. So the push on open data, you know, starts with that premise. I think in economic and business terms, the lack of data being opened up challenges more than it hurts incumbents. So if open data isn't open, it's proprietary. Big companies are more likely to be able to access that, whether through partnership agreements with governments and so on, than small companies, and certainly more so than citizens. So you know, we think that there is absolutely a need to continue this push. We just put out a week or so ago the latest version of our open data barometer, which I guess represents a bit of a maturing of the open data movement because it perhaps moves from the need to get data out there and put it in the public domain almost for its own sake to really emphasising even more clearly than we have in the past that that is not an end in itself, it's a means to an end, and that if we're not also focused on ensuring the usability and the usefulness of that data and then putting it in the hands of people who can use it to improve their situation, then we're only getting half the job done. I mean, some governments express the concern that by opening up more data sets, the people they're really benefiting are the big tech companies who have the expertise and the algorithms that can work on those massive data sets. So I was interested that you say that you think it aids the challenges more than the incumbents. Can you say more about that? Well, I think it's simply that there may be something in that concern But the answer cannot be to therefore hold the data back because the two things that can happen there is that 
nobody has access to the data. There's a lack of transparency. That's a problem. Or that big companies who may have partnership agreements with governments or may have access in other ways are able to use that data and small companies and citizens are not. So I think the only way to address that problem is to open it up and then deal with that challenge. And there are lots of effort by governments and by others too to ensure that when data is put into the public domain, it then is available and really usable by the media, by citizens groups and by local governments and and so on. Final area I'd like to touch on is the whole issue of data architecture. And Sir Tim has announced that he's really pushing very hard ahead with his solid project, which is a MIT focused new open source platform that would enable us to take control of our own data. And he's launched a company called Inrupt to help develop all of that infrastructure. Is that really what's needed? Do we have to redesign the whole architecture of the web? Well, certainly what Tim is doing there is something that's separate from what he does with the Web Foundation. But what we can absolutely be clear about is that ensuring people are better able to control and to move if they want to their data and to give access to it to the people they want to give access to, that challenge needs a lot more people thinking about it and needs a lot more efforts to figure out the best way to do that. And I think, you know, you're seeing some of those efforts coming from within some of those big companies even, as well as lots of great energy around this outside. So it's definitely in the direction that we would want to see the world going. And I guess this boils down at the end of the day to whether the problems that we have on the web are a bug or a feature. If it's the former, then they're probably fixable. If it's the latter, then we're in a bit of trouble, aren't we? Yes. And we start, and I know Tim starts from some optimism. I think his most retweeted tweet that didn't use the words net neutrality uh, (laughs) was after the Cambridge Analytica story broke earlier this year when he put a series of tweets out. And the one, if I recall rightly, that was the most popular, talked about how these are bugs, in his view, in the system. And bugs are created by humans and can be fixed by humans. Now, I myself heard some howls of protest at that optimism from some in our own community, as we would see it, people also campaigning on these issues. And we absolutely hear that and respect that you know people are worried that it isn't as easy as that. And we're not saying it's going to be easy. But I think that fundamental starting point for Tim, you know, who invented this thing and who knew how it could be created that there has to be a way and that it cannot be beyond the wit and the imagination of all of us working together to find a way to fix it. You know, that optimism does hold through. But I think we would also be absolutely clear that it's not going to be fixed by one individual or even by one sector, one group of individuals. This is going to take public policymakers and government. It's going to take private sector leaders and companies. It's going to take all of us as web users and citizens to play our part to ensure, firstly, that everyone can access this extraordinary gift to the world and also that it's something really worth accessing all bugs are fixable as the saying goes with enough eyeballs so you better get back and reconnect all the rest of the people on the planet i'll get to work we've been asking listeners to send in their views on overrated and underrated technologies potential threats to the tech industry and what non-tech book they would recommend that has influenced how they think about technology. I put the last of those questions to Adrian and asked him which book had influenced his thinking in the past year. This year, this goes a bit beyond technology, but I'm going to throw it in anyway, fantastic book just published in the last uh, month or so by the late Hans Rosling and his son and daughter-in-law, I think, called Factfulness. He was, before his death less than a year ago, I think the best exponent of telling a story using 
incontrovertible facts explaining how they should inform our thinking and having that kind of passionate optimism that those facts could prevail if he could tell the story well enough. And that book by Hans Rosling, Factfulness, I think it's terrific and well worth a read. And I guess the lesson of that book is that good policy and free markets work, isn't it? Yes. Good policy, free markets and active citizens. Well, I hope that's inspired you to contribute to our informal survey. If you'd like to take part in the debate, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Or why not send us an audio recording that we can include in a future episode? We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon 